Hello everybody, welcome to HIV in Focus, a series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and to provide practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Sutton. I'm lucky enough to have had a number of media roles, including the Sets Clinic on E4, and I try to use my platforms to educate the wider public on subjects related to sex. Welcome back to part two of Menopause Matters for Women Living with HIV 2 with the wonderful Dr. Shima Tariq. We're just about to broach the million dollar question of systemic HRT. So <laughs> Shima, tell me, so um, I know just from my own sort of, I guess, background, general knowledge, I used to fear HRT and think mm. it was all dreadful. I'm going to get breast cancer, blah, blah, blah. But that's not true, is it? So what would you tell, because I don't think we have to be menopause experts to be able to open up a conversation and be an advocate to write to the GP and say, this woman would benefit from HRT. But I think we need to have enough knowledge to have that conversation with them about the pros and the cons and the risks. Yeah. So what do you say to your women about systemic HRT? Yeah, so I'm a really, really big believer in giving women information and sort of correct, accessible information about systemic HRT and also supporting our colleagues in primary care to manage it. So we did some research a few years ago which showed that although GPs who specialise in SRH care feel very, very confident managing menopause in the general population, they really don't feel confident managing menopause in women living with HIV. And it won't be a surprise to you until, you know, when we think about what those reasons are, it's fears about missing an HIV related diagnosis. So are these really hot flushes or does this patient have TB lymphoma Um, and drug interactions? which Mm. is not surprising given that we bang on about drug interactions in every single letter. So, of course, our GP colleagues are worried about prescribing. So what do I say to women and to my colleagues? Firstly, I say, as as I said at the top of this, that um, menopause is not a disease. You don't have to take treatment, but there is very good treatment there if you need it and if you think you would benefit from it. The treatment we offer is systemic HRT. So that's a combination usually of estrogen and progestogen. For women with a womb, you need to take progestogen as well because it protects your endometrium. You can't have unopposed estrogen because of the risk of endometrial pathology. For women without a uterus or people without a uterus, you can take estrogen on its own. HRT is not contraindicated in HIV. There is no reason why women living with HIV can't have HRT in the same way that women with diabetes take HRT and women with all sorts of other long-term conditions take HRT. However, I can't point you to any long-term cohort studies that have looked at the safety of HRT or the benefits of HRT in this group. Because if you think about something like the Women's Health Initiative, They had like 30,000 women followed up over 20 years. Now, if you think, you know, with HIV, that's that's very difficult to get those numbers over that length of time. We may see that in the future, but at the moment we don't have that data. But I think, you know, we can assume that HRT is just as safe in women with HIV. In terms of drug-drug interactions, it's really important to remember that the drug interactions are different to when we're using hormones as contraception. So I think we all get really anxious and think, well, what if you, you know, what if you have reduced levels of estrogen? Now, yeah, of course, when we're prescribing contraception, that's 
important because mm. your consequences unintended pregnancy when it comes to hrt if you have reduced levels of estrogen or increased levels of progestogen or reduced levels of progestogen it's about titrating according to symptoms so it might yeah. be you just need to increase your estrogen up a little bit or decrease your progestogen a bit or switch anti-rets to something where you're not going to have interactions so something like an integrase or another nnrti so you know fairly straightforward to manage now in terms of long-term risks what i say to women is that if you start there's clear evidence now that if you start hrt within five years of menopause that there is benefit in terms of your cardiovascular risk. It also reduces your risk of bone disease, which is, both of these things are really important in HIV. We know yeah. women living with HIV have a higher risk of osteoporosis and a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And oestrogen is cardioprotective and bone protective. However, combined HRT, so that's oestrogen with progestogen, has a slightly increased risk of breast cancer. And that's the same whether you're with, you know, with or without HIV. Now, if we put that into perspective, so if you take a thousand women in the UK and follow them up for five years, now these are women who aren't taking HRT, about 23 of those women over five years will develop breast cancer. That's not to say they'll die of breast cancer, they'll develop breast cancer. And remember, breast cancer treatment is, you know, massively changing year on year in terms of positive outcomes. Now, if you take a group of a thousand women on HRT and follow them up for five years, and this is combined HRT, the risk goes up by an extra four. So you're looking at about 27 per thousand. And I think that might surprise people because I think the biggest fear, especially for women, is the breast cancer risk. But if you look at the risk with obesity, it's well tell me the figures it's much higher it's about 16 it's you know yeah. it's, it's it's sort of extra 16 um the risk with hrt is the same as the increased risk with combined oral contraception and we yeah. don't get twitched about prescribing the contraceptive pill and start going oh, about the breast cancer risk we just yeah. you know we dish it out without even thinking i would say yeah we get more twitched about migraines than we do about breast yeah. cancer with the combined pill so we're looking at a similar risk a comparable risk and you're absolutely right there is a much higher risk with obesity which is clearly a major risk factor but also smoking and sort of moderate and drinking alcohol. even a glass of yeah. wine a day increases your risk there is really good rct data from the women's health initiative from a few years back where they pulled a lot of their data over a period of about 20 years which showed categorically that women on combined and also estrogen only hrt did not have an increased risk of mortality compared to those not on hrt and there are some studies that show that actually hrt reduces your risk of death because it reduces your risk of heart attacks and it reduces your risk of bone disease. And again, I think that's a massive learning point. That's the bottom line. And I think we need to change women's perspective of that and of the healthcare professionals. Yeah, and to <clears> say <throat> that, you know, there is increasing evidence that HRT is safe. Those those headlines, which I remember sort of coming out as I was just mm. sort of towards the end of medical school. So there's a whole generation of doctors who just... Are terrified of HRT. Yeah, I'm um, one of them. Yeah, me too. 
And I remember my mum coming off HRT at that yeah. time and being highly symptomatic, actually. So you know, there's a yeah. whole generation of women who've had a disservice done to them as a result of this. The problem with those studies, and there's loads and loads of great papers you can read deconstructing what happened with those studies. Those studies were using HRT in a population that we generally wouldn't use HRT with. So they were yeah. starting HRT. These are women in their 60s commencing HRT, which we wouldn't do. You no. generally would not start HRT in somebody in their 60s. Now, you may continue HRT mm-hmm. for women in their 60s, but you wouldn't start afresh, which is when you have the highest risk. So that's one problem. But the other problem is they're using quite old-fashioned HRT, old-fashioned preparations. And my sort of favoured regimen that I recommend to GPs for the women that I see in my clinic, which I would recommend regardless of HIV status, is transdermal oestrogen as a gel or as a patch and Mm -hmm. micronized progestogen, which is what we call body identical. And that combination has been, you know, is safer. It has less of a thromboembolic risk and probably has a low risk of breast cancer and easy to tolerate. Or you use transdermal oestrogen and a marina, which I I love marina coils. They're fabulous. And, (laughs) you know, then you've sorted out someone's contraception as well. Yeah, and I I think as well that's really important just while we're on the topic of contraception is to understand that HRT is not contraceptive. And so if you've got a contraceptive running alongside it, it needs to carry on. Even if you're, I mean, we talked a bit about the perimenopause, didn't we? And there's nothing wrong, as far as I'm aware, with trialing HRT to see if this improves the symptoms, Yeah, you know, and, and see if that gets better. And I think as one of my main learning points from, you know, reading about menopause is that the best treatment for the depressive symptoms is HRT. So don't put them on antidepressants. Trial someone on HRT because it's much more likely to respond. Absolutely. It can really be transformative. So I did my virtual HIV menopause clinic last, um, well, yesterday. And there's um, there's three of us, three consultants who do that clinic together and a psychologist. And we discuss an increasingly long list of referrals every month, which is great. Now, there's one woman we discussed who we've been seeing. I've been seeing her on and off for about a year and a half. Like many women with HIV, she did have longstanding mood-related issues anyway because of lots of difficult life circumstances. However, clearly got worse during menopause. But at the same time as her daughter had left home as well, and that goes back to all these life events happening at this time. And she was a bit nervous of taking HRT and it took a long time to sort of give her the information and for her to feel comfortable with a trial. She's been on it for two months and she says that she feels better than she has done for about five years. A lot of that mood component has disappeared and she's been on antidepressants throughout this. She's been on SSRIs and they clearly weren't making any difference really to a lot of her mood changes. So Yeah, the indications for HRT here in the UK are for vasomotor symptoms and for mood-related changes to do with menopause. At the moment, it's not not recommended as a prophylaxis for bone protection. But yeah, I have quite a low threshold to recommend it to people because I do think it's just really good stuff. Yeah. Honestly, when I need it, I will be on it and I'm going to stay on it till 90. Yeah. At least until I die. I feel absolutely (laughs) the same. The way I see it is... We weren't designed to live until we were 
90. We were designed to basically have kids go through menopause and then pop our clogs. You know, we weren't meant to spend half our lives post-menopause. And that's what we're going to do. And so we need to give our bodies that helping hand to make sure that we're fit and well and happy and having good sex until we're 90. And yeah, a lot of my work is about trying to get that message across and trying to open up those conversations. And as HIV doctors, I feel we're in a privileged space to be able to do that because I don't think these conversations happen anywhere else. The other thing I want to add that I have been seeing recently is a number of women who've experienced early menopause or premature ovarian Mm -hmm. insufficiency, so menopause under the age of 40, which is probably more common in HIV. And I've just seen a a few women recently who who are now in their 40s and 50s who went through menopause in their 30s and had attended clinic and talked about it and no one had done anything about it. And they now have abnormal DEXA scans. And it's Mm. really to get across that premature ovarian insufficiency carries with it a significantly higher risk of morbidity and mortality. Women who don't have that exposure to estrogen up to the usual age of 51, sort of 50, 51, are much more likely to develop cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis and a whole host of other things. The treatment for that is HRT without exception, almost without exception. So really, if you see a woman in her 30s who hasn't had a period for a year, you need to be thinking is this premature ovarian insufficiency? Do I need a bit more advice? This woman needs to be on HRT as soon as possible to ensure we preserve her health in the future. So I can't get that across more, to be honest, because when I see patients like that, I just think about the tremendous missed opportunity and their long-term risk of comorbidities, especially Mm. in the context of HIV. So... Yeah, ask about periods because not having a period when you're not on contraception and not pregnant, not breastfeeding, needs to be talked about a bit more and thought about a bit more. I think another thing that sometimes confuses people is we don't need a blood test either to diagnose menopause. We can, unless it's obviously with worried about premature menopause but in the vast majority of women so over the age of 45 if someone's having symptoms that we've talked about of menopause and they would want or are happy to trial a trial of HRT you don't need to be doing blood tests or there doesn't need to be any formal diagnosis does there? No so menopause over the age of 45 is a clinical diagnosis it's based on your symptoms so if you have any of the symptoms of menopause or it's based on your bleeding pattern and we've shown with data from Prime where we've looked at a group of postmenopausal women that they all have elevated FSH so Mm. actually you know bar four so it's not contributing anything all it's doing is either wasting NHS resource or wasting Mm. time or sometimes if you're perimenopausal where your hormones are going to be fluctuating it's giving you false reassurance so you think that a woman isn't menopausal but but she is so Mm. no FSH testing in anyone over the age of 45 the only time I do it is if a woman's over the age of 50 and she wants to stop contraception yeah then it might be useful. So if she's on contraception, which has made her amenorrheic, and so it's really difficult to establish menopausal status, then you might want to do an FSH. But that's it, really. And yes, you're right, under the age of 45, then FSH becomes more useful because 
then there's a bigger range of things that could be causing sort of disrupted cycles. Yeah, like policy discoveries or there's lots of reasons. Absolutely. But yeah, no, it's definitely on our, should should be more on our radar. But yeah, no FSH testing over the age of 45. Good evidence now that, you know, that applies to women living with HIV. And definitely no LH and estrogen tests because they re- you know, they very rarely add anything to, you know, your clinical assessment. See. It's just a waste of resources. So give us your top recommendations of what we need to be doing better. Number one, ask about periods. Ask women when their last period was and has their cycle changed. Number two, if a woman is in her 40s, start asking her proactively about menopausal symptoms. It doesn't take long. You just need to ask her about hot flushes, ask her about her mood and ask her about sex because otherwise she's not going to volunteer it. If a woman has any of those symptoms, just be thinking about menopause. And there's a really, really good patient resource now. So if you go to the Sophia Forum website, and I feel like I can, you know, I can showcase this because I have nothing to do with this. So it's not (laughs) self-publicity, but there's an absolutely brilliant patient leaflet, which was written with Sophia Forum and Louise Newson, who's a menopause specialist. And it's really easy to read and it's specifically about menopause and HIV and it talks about what menopause is and what the treatments are and how that can be managed. If you see a woman who has got menopausal symptoms, and even if you don't, if you're seeing a woman in her 40s, just text her a link to that leaflet or have those leaflets in your waiting room. We have a pile of them at Mortimer Market just in the waiting room for people to flick through. And then try in your clinics to establish a pathway. So we have a virtual clinic. I also have a specialist clinic once a month. Think about Mm. how you could do that. Who in your clinical team could take a lead to provide this care? And I'm always really happy to talk to people about setting up a service because I think this is the future of HIV care for women. We're seeing fewer and fewer younger women diagnosed with HIV. So what we're seeing is an ageing cohort Mm. and approximately a third of women living with HIV, accessing HIV care now are in that peri-postmenopausal age group. And that's only going to increase. So we kind of need to be thinking about how we address their care and making sure they have decent quality of care. And yeah, talk about menopausal vaginas. That's probably my last my last <laughs> bit of advice. 100%. And I guess as, as well, I really think we need to be our patient's advocate when we're writing to GPs because if even if you don't have a specialist service, a lot of GPs will be able to manage menopause and we should be managing it as per NICE guidelines, shouldn't we? Yeah. So if we tell our, if we tell our GPs, please manage as per NICE guidelines, you know, I think this lady would benefit from a trial of HRT, for example, we've put them on an integrase to make it easy for you to prescribe, blah, blah, blah. Jobs are good and, and you can potentially save a relationship breakdown, transform a woman's life, keep them in their career. You know, it it, it really is life-changing, isn't it? It is. And it's, you know, it really is that easy. It's about writing a letter to the GP yeah. and just saying, I'm really confident that this is not related to HIV. This yeah. woman has an undetectable viral load. This is not lymphoma. This isn't TB. This is clearly menopause. And this yeah. is what you can do about it. And it really does make a difference. So Shima, other than the leaflet that you mentioned, what other support can we uh, provide to our HIV cohort if they wanted some? So 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think signposting women to good sources of support is really important. So, yeah, there's the leaflet I talked about on the Sophia Forum. There's also leaflets and videos on AIDSMAP, which is the UK's number one HIV information organisation. There's peer support, which you can get through organisations such as Positively UK, which is the UK's leading HIV peer support organisation. But something that I'm really, really excited about is the GROWS project. So the GROWS project is a collaboration between Sophia Forum, Positively UK, AIDSMAP and uh, my department at UCL. And what we are developing is a model of peer mentors for women aging with HIV so we're taking what's been happening really well in pregnancy which is mental mother programs and that's been shown in trials to really improve outcomes we're taking that model and now applying it for the first time ever internationally to women aging with HIV so we've just finished our first training so we've just trained I think eight or nine peer mentors for women aging with HIV Maybe we can call them mentor aunties. I don't know. (laughs) And um, we're going to be training 45 women who will be initially covering London, but they will be host. They will be mainly based at Positively UK, which is a national organisation. So watch this space when this program is up and running. I think peer support is it's always really important in HIV. We've seen that in so many areas of HIV and I think it's going to have a massive role to play in supporting women aging with HIV too. And hopefully now we live in a virtual world almost it doesn't really matter where you live hopefully people in Rotherham for example where I hail from people could access that support. Absolutely. That's one of the few sort of benefits of the last two years is the fact <laughs> yeah. that, you know, that is probably the only benefit from the last two years is that actually services are opening up and people are more comfortable engaging with services digitally. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll you'll read a lot more about the Gross Project as um as we finish our training and I, I'm really excited about this. I think that that's gonna be a fantastic intervention for women living with HIV. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to record this podcast with me, Shima. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed our chat. Me too, Naomi. Really, really great. Thank you for having me on. And we can find you on Twitter. Just give me your Twitter handle. So I'm on Twitter at at Savoy underscore underscore truffle. It's a legacy Twitter account from when I set it up before (laughs) I was a grown-up doctor. (laughs) It's always embarrassing. But you can also follow our study Twitter account at prime underscore UCL. Fabulous. And thank you everyone for listening. Please tune into the next episode. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of HIV in Focus. If you enjoyed it, do tune into one of the other episodes from the series. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences. Music